Welcome back, listeners. This is Brandon Hill with In Search of Sauce, the podcast brought to you by Central Sauce and Fifth Element, where we're taking down music, clickbait music journalism one article at a time. This is Brandon Hill, a writer and editor with Central Sauce, and I'm here today with Mickey and Boom. Uh, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? Boom, go ahead and go first and give yourself some big ups since this is your first time on the podcast. Tell us what you're working on, what you've been working on, and where we should check you out. Hey, what's up, man? You know, it's your boy Boom. You know what can't call it. I've been doing this for a little bit now, man. Happy to be here. Uh, just, you know, just doing interviews for various outlets, like for the Dallas Observer out here in Dallas. And then I'm doing interviews for This Is 50 right now. And then, you know, trying to make some big stories come out of Central Sauce, man. Let's get it. Uh, what's up, guys? I'm Mickey Hellerback. Um... I write for Central Sauce as well. I also write for Euphoria Magazine. Re- most recently, I released a piece through Central Sauce um, called Rapper's Movement to Media, which explores um, the the recent movement of a lot of uh, rappers into uh, journalism as a career, uh, including Lil Wayne, Joe Budden, Crooked Eye, and others. Um, if you want to check that out, it's live on centralsauce.com. All right. Today, we've got a great show planned for you guys. We're going to jump in. We're going to talk about Deontay Hitchcock interview with Yo and DJ Booth. We've got a piece on Rumor in Complex, and we've got a couple pieces from OK Player on the struggles of independent music venues closing due to COVID. Uh, so, Mickey, why don't you go ahead and introduce the discussion on Deontay Hitchcock through Yo's interview with him on DJ Booth. So this is the first piece I think that I've, I've brought to the podcast uh, written by Yo Phillips from DJ Booth, who... Um, if it's not abundantly clear from all the episodes we're all big fans of uh, here at the podcast, <laughs> um, he's he's definitely the man. Um, we talked, I, I mean, I've we've even talked about him even when his pieces weren't up here when we were kind of talking about um, all the journalists we admire. I think I mentioned him too. Um, it's just really amazing the amount of quality work that he puts out as a journalist is really unmatched at this point. Uh, I I can't I don't think I've ever read a piece of his that wasn't anything other than within the top tier level of journalism from his interviews to his kind of um to just you know feature pieces it's it's all really kind of wild and i think one of the main things that makes him uh so good at what he does is he has this uncanny ability to set an interesting narrative even within the context of doing um an interview uh so with this piece in particular um he uh, starts out by mentioning that uh, to Deontay Hitchcock and kind of walks the the reader through uh, this exchange that he has where he mentions that Biggie was murdered the day before Deontay's fourth birthday. And then he asks Deontay if he remembers. And then uh, you get this first initial glimpse into who Deontay Hitchcock is as a person. And he answers, nah, I was just jumping off a dresser or some shit. Which is just kind of this, uh, it kind of culminates with who... <laughs> who Deontay Hitchcock is, what his music is like, and kind of how he expresses himself, I think, um, which is part of why I love the album so much, is he doesn't know how to do anything but be entirely off the cuff and honest in the moment um, with a slight edge of humor, even when he's like thinking about semi-deep things. Um, he's definitely a thinker in, in that sense, too. Uh, and then he talks about... Um, he starts talking, Yo starts talking about the four years it's taken since Deontay signed to make the album. And then he rem- reminds Deontay that the head of the company that he's signed to uh, uh, was Biggie's former manager. And then Deontay says uh, a really cool quote, which he uses to kind of catapult the article. God's the greatest screenwriter ever. Shorty's shitting on Tarantino. Um, which <laughs> I think is just a really cool. And there's definitely a lot of... Um, uh, faith discussion on the album um but through kind of Deontay's own perspective of faith itself and I think that's it's just yo by even coming up with some version of that narrative to discuss with Deontay just set up this whole really cool way to enter into the interview um and I immediately when I started reading it I got excited because as me and Brandon both said, Better is one of our favorite albums but just the way that he was able to to set that up got me really hyped off the bat because I knew he was going to tackle um, really who Deontay Hitchcock is at the core. Um, so the the things that uh, he gets from Deontay in the interview um, really tap into kind of a deeper 
a deeper and more interesting layer of who he is as a person. And the first thing that comes to mind um, is he asks him if he uh, always wanted to be in music. And his answer is no, and that he wanted to uh, own a pizza shop. <laughs> and that still was like, and still wants shop. to own a pizza shop. And that's kind of his life goal. Um, but that's all rooted in uh, a memory he had with his grandmother. And he associates like good New York pizza with happiness. Um, and that's, again, another good way to kind of uh, zone in on what the album's about, um, which is a, a very clear um, theme about family um, for the entirety of the album. And it's kind of one of the best parts of the album that kind of his own self-realization has to do with making sure he has um, a clear tie and approval from his family and the people who he holds close to him. Um, Oh, then he, and then I mentioned this a little bit before. He also gets Deontay to dive into uh, almost leaving his closing track, Angels, off the album. And uh, just, this is kind of repeating myself what I said in the intro, but I think it's just really wild to to think of an album that has so much of a through line and uh, an idea from beginning to end that <laughs> he's he's so in the moment and kind of like going with what, he feels that he almost felt that that was like an idea that was too far behind what he was going for. And it really actually culminates the entirety of the album. So I'm really glad that he, it, that yo got him to talk about it and that he left that um, as the last piece of the album to really bring everything together. Um, did you guys have any thoughts? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if we're just talking about this first, you know, starting off just talking about how, why yo did such a great job on this interview, I think one of the first things that caught my attention was the formatting of the interview. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, before you get to an interview transcript, there's always the little through line of, about like interview presented below, lightly edited for content and clarity. Um, but he adds the word vigenettes where he, that he's presenting, he's presenting Deontay's transcript as vigenettes yeah. rather than answers to questions. Is that not pronounced vignettes? Vignettes? I don't know. Maybe I'm <laughs> pronouncing that word wrong, but... Um, but yo, like, I, I want to know where yo was at in the thought process for the interview that, cause he doesn't, that's not a thing that he normally does on all interviews. So I want to know like where he was at in the thought process where he decided that the best way to present this transcript was to basically just let Deontay tell it. Um, yo doesn't have any of his questions in there. He doesn't have any of his phrasing, any of his wording. He just lets Deontay tell the whole thing. And that to me obviously stood out because it's a different format. Um, and I think did it very successfully with how to present Deontay as a character. It gave me, basically gave me the impression that if you get in a room with Deontay Hitchcock, the man's going to start talking and he's not going to stop. Um, and I think, you know, if, if that's accurate to his character and that's how yo was feeling about the interview, then I think he did, he presented that in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, dude, I totally agree. Um, I think even the moments where he does slide in uh, just kind of a question, it's only questions that just set up another entire rant by Hitchcock. He never gets in the way of him completing these um, kind of storylines that he goes on for a long period of time. So you really do get the full culmination um, of him as a person. Boom, did you have any thoughts? I checked out the article and I just feel like it was pretty much like he asked him one thing and he just that was it was literally that one question is the answer to that one question for the whole time but yo always dropping some like dope ass articles so it's like every time his, his name is in the byline i'll just check it out just to be like just to get inspired especially like the tricks that i mean the different writing formats that he does is not traditional so it's like he made up his own rules and they work and then i mean you got yeah. to know who Hitchcock was, I mean, if you didn't already know who he was, but uh, I just think he had a compelling story. I was like, well, let me check out the music after that. So, but I was more, I was more entertained by the way Yo pinned it down, though. I was like, yo, I need to study this format so I can start writing like this. So, yeah, but I yeah. feel like he's well, just, I think that's it, how I feel when I read a lot of stuff by Yo. I'm like, okay, like how did he do this, and how can I adapt this in my yeah. own? Writing? That's I find myself thinking that a lot. I mean, it's like he it always asks feels the questions, 
and it just all rolled like it rolled into the next answer and it just rolled like he knew uh, he just knew what word to use in his response to just piggyback onto a to a relatable topic that just and then eventually I mean obviously when he wrote it out it just made it like he didn't have to do nothing at all it was just him talking the whole time it was more like he wrote the piece himself Right. I, yeah. I always yeah, wonder if he's I definitely would love to talk to him at some point or how he sets up his interviews because they all are like you guys are saying so different. I wonder if he comes in with an idea of the narrative that he wants to set or he comes in with kind of these little tidbits and takes the narrative how he he um, he thinks will best highlight the artist. Like I saw a recent thing right before that. Um, black ep that just dropped which i've also been listening to which is really good came out and he did like he talked about um five of his favorite features specifically and then used that as kind of a narrative but uh i i just wonder if he if he is not ever really going in it just because he gets such a natural reaction from the artist that he talks to if he's going in kind of with a few ideas and then he just kind of shapes it based on what they end up talking about it always feels so conversational yeah, I think, you know, good good interviews or good content on any kind of the album should increase the relationship that the reader, that the listener has with the album. Um, and I think Yo always hits that nail on the head. And one thing in this particular interview that really spoke to me was how he described Deontay Hitchcock and his album as spiritually aware, mm. um, which that was something that like when I've read and then with the context of the interview – that really hit on me as like, okay, yeah, like that's why I like this album so much. Cause I love, like love this album from first listen to the 50 other times I've played it, but I've never really quite been able to like put the pin in exactly what is it that makes this album so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and yo did it when he said that it was spiritually aware. Yeah. There's a song on the album called flashbacks, mm-hmm. uh, where Deontay, Deontay Hitchcock is talking about the church taking money from his mom as a kid. Um, but throughout the entire rest of the album, you know, a lot of it talks about his spiritual relationship with God, uh, his spiritual relationship with his family. So I found it really interesting that Deontay Hitchcock used the song where he grabs the Miguel feature. Mm-hmm. And he uses that one to talk about a point that is in the most contrast to most of the other material on the album. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that was just really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that track, too. I wanted to share So I wrote a review as well of the album, um, and I just wanted to, to kind of share this one lyric, I feel like, that I, I, I feel like I need to, just because it was my favorite of the album. And it comes even in, on a track that uh, called Attitude, which is like, <laughs> it's just a really funny track. The, the hook is like, my B got an attitude which is funny, but he, it still is like all, even on a track like that, it shows how, uh, like you were talking about Brandon, like spiritually. And I mean, spiritually to me also kind of coincides with being aware of like your, just your life's journey in general and how that, that is just kind of a spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. But he, this one line always just really, just really hit my ear. And it's kind of what made me really tap into the album. As soon as I heard this line, I remember going back to the first track and listening more. Um, but I wanted to just talk about it and see if you guys have any thoughts about it, too. I just thought it was really interesting. Um, I'll even read the little piece that I wrote after it. Uh, see this life black and white like Zabumafu, trying to figure it out like a Rubik's Cube. So then what I said is, Hitchcock uses color to describe his path to enlightenment. Uh, the PBS show reference is clever, but it also effectively sets up the concept of seeing the world only two, only two ways at opposite sides of the color spectrum. A Rubik's Cube has a variety of colors, all existing in between black and white, and one must sort through them, then arrange them in a way so they make sense. Hitchcock has transitioned from a closed-minded approach to, to life uh, to opening himself up to the color spectrum of the in-between. A difficult choice to make as it requires work, analysis, and patience, but once Hitchcock can solve the Rubik's Cube, he can move forward with new understanding. Then once he hits another roadblock, he can rearrange the cube and try to solve it again. Um, yeah, I mean, that definitely defines, like, his spiritual awareness. Right. I think he just pays such attention to every line where he really has uh, and and uses – he uses kind of what we would describe as bars or, like, lines as in a way to directly explore um, kind of life philosophy and spiritual awareness that I think is really um, – I think it's new. I don't – I just don't know that I've heard – 
an artist do it specifically in the way where it just feels like kind of a natural culmination of what he's going through rather than someone who would spit that type of a bar. It always seems like it's some type of dissection of a beat and it just never feels that way whenever he puts that in the track. Yeah, no, well put, well said. Uh, you got any last thoughts to add on that, Boom, or I'll just jump into the next piece? Nah, I got it. He's dope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that pretty much that pretty much sums it up about the best you can. <laughs> All right, so my piece, uh, speaking of incredible interviews is in complex and it's rumor is more than a mask in a viral moment now to be clear who i'm talking about here uh the piece is by eric skelton but to be clear who i'm talking about here when i say rumor um his name is rmr it's the dude with the ski mask singing the rascal flats uh fuck 12 remix so you know you've probably seen like and this is for the listeners you might not have all the context because i didn't even know up until this point how his name was pronounced uh it re, you know, it reads RMR, so I've been calling the dude RMR, but Skelton actually points out in this article that it should be pronounced rumor. So I'm I'll probably still call him RMR while I'm talking about it, but for future reference, um, you know, trying to work on changing that to rumor because I basically just now learned that pronunciation. So at the beginning of this interview, Skelton provides a quick recap of sort of the events that have led up to rumors EP. Um uh, drug dealing is a lost art. What exactly is it? The name the of lost it. art of drug dealing. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Um, so he does a quick, like a quick rundown of, of the events that led up to this, and it provides, like, it not only sets the tone for the interview, but it provides a really important context because rumor is such a sort of mysterious figure. So rumor went viral over Twitter with a music video for the single "Rascal." Uh, so shows him in a ski mask, body armor, bunch of guns. Uh, Skelton even refers to it as looking like something out of a Chief Keef video. So it definitely takes you as a surprise the first time you see the video and he starts belting out great vocals over, you know, these days and bless the broken road. Um, so the video goes viral. It gets taken down probably for copyright reasons. But of course, you know, everyone's talking about the song on Twitter and no one really knows who the guy is. So it goes pretty viral. Uh, a lot of people heard it. Um, it reminded me a lot of like Lil Nas X with the viral clips, the country hip hop blend. And as Skelton says, it definitely felt initially like an industry manufactured old town road moment. Um, and I, you know, I thought the song was great, a little gimmicky. So I wasn't really paying attention to rumor as a whole. I was definitely listening to the song because it was a great song, but wasn't expecting more from him. So I even missed the single, uh, with future and little baby that he put out dealer until I heard actually Ben and Charlie were big up in it on an episode of Digging in the Digits. So yeah, shout out to our sister podcast. They actually put me on to this album. So just like Skelton, um, pretty quick into listening to the EP after I heard about it, I like I, right off the bat with the West Side Gun feature on Welfare, I knew like you instantly know that this guy is not a one hit wonder. Um, this does, It's not just a manufactured country hit. Like maybe he's pretty intentional with the way that he marketed himself, but uh, he's got the music to back it up. So now like, so now there's, there's this incredible genre bending singer rapper and no one knows who he is. We haven't seen his face. He wears the ski mask. He does it very intentionally. He hasn't really done any interviews. Skelton even talks about, um, you know, obviously going in and reading or listening to other interviews that the guy has done to prepare for his own interview and the guy provides like offshoot questions, like you know, people ask where he's from. He answers from the world, man. Like, you know, very, very abstract, very unclear answers. So he has successfully built one of the most compa compelling characters in hip hop with the way that he's marketed himself. Yeah. So now Skelton gets this chance to interview him, like with an actual in-depth interview for Complex. And the entire interview just makes the guy even more intriguing. Right. You know, like you think about you think about going into an interview and you want to ask these questions to find out more things about the artist so that you can get to know the artist better. But this interview almost just gave me more questions. I know. Um, That's exactly what I was going to say, dude. And it's the way <laughs> like the way Skelton sets up the tone, like his writing in the pre-interview thing, which is pretty long. 
But for this interview, I mean, it definitely needed to be long. There's a lot of context to build here around this guy. Um, and I, a particular paragraph that stood out to me is when Skelton says, after the success of Rascal, Rumor did a few short interviews where he offered up vague responses like, I'm from the world, when asked about his background. So I was a little worried he might not be ready for the spotlight that will likely follow an exceptional debut like this. But when he joined my Zoom call on May 26, he was poised. Rumor is the kind of guy who always finds ways to pull deep, thoughtful epiphanies out of the most mundane circumstances. He has a habit of throwing out phrases like expand your consciousness when explaining his ultimate goals as an artist, but he does so in a remarkably grounded, believable way. So even going into this transcript, you have this sense of mystique and amazement kind of. It really sets the tone for the conversation, and I think if you're going to talk about you know, what makes this interview an incredible piece of journalism beyond just being a good interview um, is how successfully Skelton sets that tone. And I think that, you know, when we've talked about good interviews on this podcast before, we usually recognize like how great the pre-interview research is, you know, how knowledgeable an interviewer will navigate around the boring questions with a destination in mind for the subject. Um, but big shout out to Skelton for handling this interview so well with absolutely nothing to go off of. Um, yeah, I really think that besides, deserves some recognition. Yeah, besides the music and the visuals, he, the, yeah, like he described at the beginning, there was literally no no other interview where he could be like, well, someone already asked that, so I have to like navigate against that and do a different type of interview. So it kind of gave him a little bit of an open road a little bit, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, what are your guys' thoughts on the EP, the interview? Yeah, so I think um, the word that comes to mind, uh, I don't know if I've heard anyone else describe rumor as this but i think what he is entirely is just a conundrum and that's really the thing that made him cut through because if he really was even on impact with that rascal flats video if he really did totally to people seem like an industry planted idea based off of Lil Nas X then he wouldn't have gotten the traction that he actually got it was just the way that he delivered it and he even talks about it a little bit in the interview how uh he he just thought that the imagery with that as being like sort of like a Chief Keef video singing that kind of thing would make people kind of fall into like, what is the conundrum of this character? And he always leaves things open. And I just, I think it's really interesting with, um, when you think about genre fusion itself, specifically with like hip hop and country, um, whether, whether something feels or is intentional or unintentional. And the, the thing that makes him so interesting, and I think Skelton did a really good job of delving into, even though, like you said, Brandon, he kind of still gives these vague answers, is um, that you can never truly pinpoint whether he is being intentional or unintentional. Because there's some version where he kind of sets up this thing constantly where he's like, you know, I just make whatever music I feel in the moment and I have a lot of different influences but then right after that he'll come in with like another line about how like he like you said he wants to expand people's consciousness so he like is kind of actively trying to make a wide range of music so people will be open to more things and ideas it but he you can never tell if he's really locked in or if he's just kind of like doing whatever and hoping for the best which really you can't it can't, you can't help but wonder if he's being genuine or coached. That's like the really weird thing. But at the end of the day, you're going to keep paying attention no matter what. Yeah, I mean, if like if he's being coached, like if we're looking at an industry plant, op- you know, if this whole thing is a marketing scheme, it's a, it's a damn good one. I mean, I like I'm hooked. Yeah, got me. So yeah, I'll listen to anything else that comes out. No, it's 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 definitely uh, it's a it's definitely a gimmick. But he's playing that shit like he's definitely playing it to like the T. But it's definitely a gimmick. And um, just the way he did that interview is just like you're doing this intentionally. You're not being genuine with your answers. You're doing this to create a a motif about you that pretty much is like a Frank Ocean. Like our weekend, like I don't really Mm -hmm. do interviews. And when I do, I'm really short with it or I'm not as revealing.
So in in sense of it, I'm interested to kind of dissect that boom. Actually, I think is like, do you think that that there's no part of him making music at all that comes from a genuine place of like what he wants to make music for, even if it is with some intention of like, oh, I'm going to talk about expanding people's minds and like everyone needs to be open to all of these things as a thing. Do you think that that doesn't come from any type of place of reality? Like it's all a thing that they were like, oh, let me just take this random guy and for some reason he seems to be like the guy and will create this entire narrative. Do you think it comes from any type of genuine place with him? Oh, okay. Yeah. But so, so that initial, that initial video though was just a cover. So do you think they, they came with the video and then had the songs tucked already and it was like a built up kind of thing? Let's keep it. Well, he actually it. he actually said in the interview, which was one of the notes I wrote down, I thought the most interesting was that they had the whole EP recorded before the single or before the video. Dropped. Right, right. Which I found, like, I thought that was really interesting because even, like, you know, the first single, like I said, uh, sounded, you know, kind of gimmicky. Like, it right. was good. It was a good song. I listened to it a lot. But obviously, like, there's the, you know, the gimmick of, like, a, you know, a bunch of people with guns and body armor and ski masks. And then, you know, they bring uh, out a country song and the dude can sing. And plus, you know, it's a cover of a Rascal Flat song. So, like, that very much was, like, it, like a good song but very much gimmicky. Um, so I figured, you know, like what you said, I figured that the song came out and he got big and then you got artists like Lil Baby, uh, Future and West Side Gun and Young Thug who are like, oh, like he's got a lot of attention. Like, let me jump on that with him. You know, like, let me see where it can go from here. But he had all the stuff recorded in advance, which surprised me because of the remakes recorded in advance. No. no. Yeah. I mean, not the remix, yeah, but, no, um, like the song with West Side Gun, which I think like goes far beyond a gimmick to just being like I, I think one of the best songs of the year so far um, oh yeah so much but to have that like go so like you know the gimmick was obviously a way to get his hooks in to get people paying attention but then I think unlike Lil Nas I think he followed it through with like genuine artistry right but do, um, do, here's the i always i think this is actually a really good thing to talk about on the podcast because we get in this really weird gray area when we talk about what an industry plant or a gimmick really is because i think it's hard to really tie that down and i think that's kind of what's really cool about rumor is so do you think because we keep referring to that rascal flats video as a gimmick or like something that feels like a version of what people would call an industry plant. But do you think it's like they have all of this stuff and they're sitting in a room and they're like, okay, what would be a wild thing that we would do in order to get all of these people to take attention to this? Or do you think this guy was like, it was some version of, um, which would be at least in my eyes, less of a gimmick. He was like, I really like rascal flats. Do you think we could do like a cool video where we are all dressed up in like chief key face masks and like with guns. And then we were just singing this rascal flat song as this kind of like weird thing. And they were like, Oh, that sounds crazy. Let's put it out and see what it does. Because the first thing feels very inorganic. Right. But the second thing seems to me at least like it would be actually kind of artistic in a way. Um, so I, I always want to delve into like what the exact definition is, because I think the general idea is to frown upon something that is what we would be considered like industry plant or gimmicky. But I always think that there's more of a gray area. Oh, oh, definitely. Well, see, I think in this, in this specific case, like one of the reasons that it works so well is just because of, you know, who he was and the kind of music that he was making, you know, granted, we don't know who he is. We don't know the kind of music, but I, obviously like it is a core part of him as an artist that he wants to make this, sort of genre shifting bend of music um and i think that just happens to fit very well into a label marketing plan as well as like be part of his core identity as an artist right i, th um, I think so too and i just never think that you can frown upon that 
I think it's cool to like be like, oh, I, this is a marketing idea that we can use that comes from a natural place. Yeah, even no, it's it definitely is, even if it's a little calculated, even in Rumor's head as he kind of talks about his own music. Yeah, well, it brings like. Like, I mean, like you said, it's not something to frown on because it's not like I don't think that his gimmick is purely just a thing to sell records. Like, I think his like his gimmick, um, which when I say gimmick, I'm referring like that first song, the Rascal song I thought was gimmicky. The rest of his music, I do not think was gimmicky. I think it has been like, but the Rascal Flat song was a was a gimmick to introduce his perspective as an artist. Right. So again, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to get into that specifically. So do you think it was more of, or maybe you don't think it's anything like the two examples that I provided. Do you think it was like what to me would be viewed as a gimmick people in the room? Like what's a kind of weird idea that we know will go viral to get people to pay attention to this guy. Or do you think it was an idea that was made out of like a natural, like, Oh, I kind of want to do this cool artistic idea of like mixing rascal flats with like a chief Keef style video. And then um, if it's the second thing, what makes that gimmicky? Well, I, like I said, I think it's just a little bit of both. Like, I think it's a way you know, obviously, like he like because he, he says in the interview that he likes Rascal Flats and he has a big respect for Rascal Flats. Um, so you know, it's probably something like he has sang Rascal Flats songs before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, granted, like like with that with that remix, obviously, like he didn't write all the lyrics to it. You know, it's a cover, and then they change a few things, but it still fits into his identity as an artist. So, he, like, even though if it like even though it is a great marketing plan it's not a marketing plan that goes like that goes against his identity mm-hmm. you know like sometimes you see like you see a marketing thing where someone clearly steps out of i'm trying to think of an example um steps, where someone like steps out of themselves they, rather than yes being they clearly step out themselves. of themselves yeah. to to do something for a marketing purpose right and i don't think that that's obviously not what happened here mm-hmm. like it's it's a gimmick that served both purposes. Right. Um, so you don't just, you I don't think read... of you don't think of the term gimmick in a negative sense necessarily. No, 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 not necessarily. Right. But because because like I said, like I think it fits into his identity so well. And I wanted to read uh, the quote that was my favorite quote from the interview that I think kind of makes the link between those two things. Mm-hmm. So um, Skelton asks, "When you were making drug dealing as a lost art, what was your biggest goal for it?" And rumor replies to raise consciousness. You take a very urban kid, I don't care what color he is, shit, let's say he's from Detroit, and he listens to my EP, and his favorite song is Welfare, because that relates to him. And then the next song up is Silence. He's like, what the fuck? But then he starts liking Silence. And then he starts looking for different sounds that kind of remind him of Silence, like Billie Eilish or something like that. And then he starts liking them. Now he's growing. It's growth. It's change. Or somebody who just likes I'm Not Over You, and they love pop music, and then they end up liking Welfare, and now they're running over to Meek Mill, and they run to a whole bunch of trap artists or whatnot. Expand. So I think, you know, even if it, like, like maybe we should stop using the term gimmick, but even if we think of that first song, Rascal, as a way to hook people in, Mm -hmm. it's a way to hook people in with something that then transitions to all the other material that he has. Because, you know, that's exactly what he says. Mm -hmm. He wants to make something that reaches one person or one group of people and then makes the rest of his material more accessible so that that person can then branch out even more from that. Mm. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that's cool. I just, I always like to go into those terms. I I don't think I've ever been able to actually Mm -hmm. speak about it on a public platform because they're, they're these kind of blanket terms to me, at least that come across as being like a negative connotation to people of like a plant or a, a gimmicky kind of thing, but it all had, I think that most nine times out of 10, that those kind of things that people talk about do on some level have artistic value, even within the things that people may view as like, just kind of a move to get people to, to pay attention more. I think, yeah, I think that you're entirely right, that there's a difference between doing something that is with not directly related to the core of who someone is and, and something that is actually a part of who they are as an artist. Yeah, definitely. Any thoughts, boom, before we move to your piece? I think, um, I want to see what he does next, honestly. Right. I just want to see what he does next as far as like, cause that was just an EP, but it's like, all right, mm-hmm. 
Like now you gotta you gotta keep up with this. It's like you can't just be like that sound that he has. He can't just switch up and be like he can't do like Lil Nas X and be like oh I'm gonna switch up and do every genre just to prove that I'm more than just a country artist. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, it what sounds he, like that's exactly what he intends to do from that interview. His whole he thing has very much built a very specific persona um and i think there's a lot of there's like going to be a lot of pressure for him to maintain that persona um as well as the quality of his music which you know like like you said boom like just going to kind of have to keep our ears open and see where it goes from there for sure definitely man i mean it's it's like and then like his project was was a and r great like the project that he just put out was a was it, that's all given to an, a great A and R really, because yeah. even to think of like him being with a West Side Gun is something that like an A and R came up with. They were like, "Yo, mm-hmm. let's try this instead. Like, let's think something unorthodox, and let's just run from there." Yeah, from uh, from the interview, it might have sounded like him and West Side Gun might not have even you know worked directly. It might have been a case of like, <laughs> like he sent, sent the out the beat, in. got a verse. <laughs> but he but then he also mentions in the interview uh, wanting to you know him and West Side Gun are planning to link up for something in the future. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's an artist I would love to see him you know like sit down and collaborate with you know as opposed to just like you know, getting that offshoot feature just to have the name on there. Yeah. Um, but to, to see him really sit down and collaborate with West Side Gun would be would be incredible. Also, I'd love to see him get on something with Black. I think that that kind of mesh of R&B sounds would be really cool. I think uh, I think the, the thing that I thought immediately, even when I first saw that video, is, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how it could happen within the context of how music is now, but that to me looked like exactly the type of artist that would all a sudden show up on a song with Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I yeah. thought off rip. I was like, he'll be on, maybe on, he's on, new, uh, he'll on this on Kanye next album. I was like, yo, he's this on the dude's new Drake collab about to be yeah. right on there's like that new God's country album with Dr. Dre. I was like, this dude rumor is about to pop Oh no, he's definitely gonna be nowhere. on Drake next album. <laughs> he definitely gonna be on that Drake album. <laughs> I don't know if he works with Drake, but I really hear him on the Kanye. Like I sit, that just seems like the exact like it. There's an energy about it for some reason that feels more similar to me, uh, to to like a Panda thing. Like there's something about like when Panda came out and kind of that. Even though it's like entirely different, just the energy felt more more connected to me to where Rumor would end up on some type of Kanye thing. Well, hopefully his career doesn't take the dive that designers did. So. Shout out design. All right. Shout out design. Let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and move forward. Boom. Uh, you want to introduce your pieces? All right, man. My piece is pretty, or my piece is from OK Player, and it's ninety percent of independent music venues may close due to COVID nineteen. Written by Tori Redcraft. That's, I mean, you gotta make sure you shout them out in the bylines. You, you know, you'd want to be shouted out if you, if you wrote something and they talked about it on the podcast. I mean, uh, pretty much the story is, I mean, the story was alarming when I first saw it. I was like, damn, 30, 90%? Like, this COVID thing is like, it's just getting out of hand now. It's, it's pretty much making it to where we don't, we won't have live music for at least for another for the rest of the year pretty much uh but pretty much what it's saying is like um the reason why they're saying like 90 percent is basically saying that if this goes on longer than six months or six months or longer than 90 percent of a organization known as the national independent venue association their members said they would have to shut down or shut down their venues and they were trying to request the uh, the Senate and the House to grant them a to grant them a, a paycheck protection program where the government pays for their weight, their insurance, taxes, uh, rent, and payroll. On I mean, uh, it was just an interesting article because of just the the impact that COVID is having, like. 
I mean, obviously, it's one thing for us to be, like, we at home, like, we ain't really got, we can't really work, like, but you still, like, kind of, like, knowing what's going to happen, like, you kind of know what's going to happen after this is all over for yourself, and then, like, obviously, just the music business just being thrown upside down just by this, like, this is something that was probably unheard of, and to just have this be a reality is is just devastating. As far as... as far as uh, as far as the indie venues go, man, this is crazy. Cause imagine all them little small venues that you went to, like for little. They're shows like the best up. ones. Yeah, They're... like just me, and then like getting introduced to new artists. Like that was pretty much how you found out about the stars of today. Was going to those smaller venues, like the two fifty, five hundred mm-hmm. capacity, and you know you just. Before everybody else knew who they were, you got to see them and be more interactive and engaging with them. And then just to have all those be swept away. And now all we got is arenas and like night, like, yeah, arenas and theaters. It's just like that's the smaller venues is what made artists what they are today. It's what created that grassroots. And if those go away, if 90 percent of those go away, man, touring is going to be like hell for new artists. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I thought about was the impact on indie artists, man. That's exactly what I thought about. Like, yeah. it's it's going to take away their opportunity to build local followings, which right. is what indie artists thrive on. Yeah. You know, like, how are you how are you going to build a fan base in your city if there's nowhere to do a show other than the stadium? You know, it's, it's going to result in, like, you know, backyard shows and stuff like that. Right. But, you know, those get... Those get shut down by police for noise ordinances and shit. And right. you know how do you how do you get the kind of marketing out there to do that kind of stuff? Right. Um, but I think one th- one thing that this journalist did really well with this piece, though, um, is called solutions journalism, where rather than just you know talking about a problem and then how the problem is affecting people, and then ending the article on a note that's like, "Damn, yeah, this sucks." Um, <laughs> the journalist like pointed they pointed out what that organization is doing to try to get help and what that organization is doing to try to change things, um, which is specifically a targeted uh, COVID relief legislation. So, you know, I think, you know, any chance that you have to, you know, put in a word and support, uh, was the organization was NIVA, right? Yeah, NIVA. NIVA, yeah. So, you know, anytime, you know, you see a lot of petitions going around and stuff like that. Um, look, you know, look for the name NIVA, Find out ways that you can support this uh, this organization of independent music venues because while while the article headline is ninety percent of the venues may close, it does say may close. That means it's not definitive yet, and these organizations are still looking for ways to prevent that from happening. And I I, I think you know it goes without saying how important that those local venues are to independent artists, the major artists, the fans, the locals, um, the employees of the venues, even, you know, the impact of 90% of these venues closing is major. It's huge. Right. Man, even from a financial point of view, that shit is huge. But think about it, man. Like ever since the beginning of like the music business, they've had the Chitlin circuit where it's pretty much where they would put their new artists on and you would go around and, you know, make, You'd make it'd be little venues, but you're gonna get you you're gonna get a nice little bag from it pretty much. Yeah, you get a check. Yeah, but just think about it, all those are gone. It's like, all right, so what am I doing? Like I have to focus on uh viral p- presentations and that's not the same as having live like interaction with your fans. And then that pretty I think that'll affect art like the whole like the whole venue thing will wipe out like artist popularity i think at the end of the day like you would have to already been established to be like because i don't think new artists can go out there and come out with music now and be like oh well that's cool so when are you doing a show you be like oh well when all this opens up and then people forget mm-hmm. about you because they've been like all right well i'm listening to all this other music that's coming out right now so i'm not really you're not really having anything going on other than you taking pictures on instagram <laughs> right well, yeah, that, I mean, I think that that's the big thing, right? It, it's kind of, it, it's a little funky because even though he does solution-based journalism, I think like the only way to talk about it is like to talk about it in the context of like 
geez, all of this stuff is going to have to drastically change for any of these indie artists to actually accomplish anything. But what it has to do is kind of a way, I think, a little bit that the industry is moving anyway, is people are truly going to have to blow up on the internet. Like, there is not going to be that kind of build of like, okay, I've kind of seen this guy on the internet, and then I come to see guy or girl, see them perform in my city, and then I all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I saw them live, and now I'm going to get even more people to see them and kind of build from a word of mouth kind of deal. It's really going to have to be through that. And the, the thing that I really worry about, though, is like them getting placed eventually um, on the tours that they're going to need to go on to make money because no one can make a, make a living in – um, in music, strictly off of streaming numbers, like that's not a really yeah, not unless you're thing. Drake or something, right? Oh, so that means of, your main source so, of income was touring. I know. So my thing also too is what I worry about big time is that wondering if like the path which was starting to build for artists to totally remain independent starts to lessen, because in order to get those kind of plugs to catapult your career, you'd actually have to go through the system that's already really set up to screw you over and i wonder if like to actually make some version of a living out of it that more artists are actually going to be inclined to go back to major labels when it would have been better it would have been more beneficial for them to stay independent where the system was before covid and i think that's really rough if that ends up being what really happens but i think that's like the tough thing about the article because then you really just go down the rabbit hole but also potentially the thing that i guess is hopeful for me and i don't have the answers for it is that it will force artists to get more creative. And hopefully out of that, um, that's like kind of the, the general consensus of everything when it has to do with COVID is like, it forces you into a corner, but if you can be creative, potentially you can advance um, where any industry could have gone if they're, they're put in limitations and advance the, the kind of art form in a new way that's more adapted to the to society and beneficial to people hopefully i just, yeah i just really hope that you know independence actually keeps going forward yeah and it might uh you know it, it might even kind of change some of the music that gets popular too mm. like if you think about um i just at least the example i think of is like earth gang and jid um for one part because they established their initial following through live shows like they're very much performing artists um, for another thing is also I saw them at the Firebird in St. Louis with like 100 people. That's like one of the best shows I've ever been to. So there's, you know, two big reasons that they come to my mind. But so now if you take away their opportunity to play all those live shows that gets them a big local following. And now we're only talking about artists gaining traction by Twitter, um, you know, by word of mouth, by, you know, those kind of viral aspects of things. Does that change the type of music that gets blown up, that gets the most attention? <laughs> you know, because because like really that TikTok central maybe that er, exactly yeah. that's exactly what I'm talking about. That early Earth Gang JID uh, type of music that was killer at live shows, mm. uh, maybe that doesn't perform as well in snippets on TikTok. Know. You know, maybe that doesn't gain as much traction because especially I think of Earth Gang, like because this has happened to me several times. I, like, I love Earth Gang's one of my favorite artists. And I'll try to put my friends onto Earth Gang. And I'll be like, oh, dude, like, sit down. Like, we got to listen to some Earth Gang. And, like, Earth Gang is not an artist that you can just, like, sit down and you listen to one track and you're like, oh, damn. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm fucking with Earth Gang. Like, a lot of times it takes an establishment of, like, getting their style, you know, getting their sound, getting their feel. And that takes time. You know, that takes a little bit of time to sit with those. Unless you happen to catch Earth Gang or JID at an early live show and you were like, damn, these dudes go off. Like these dudes go off. So now, you know, that music that gains traction in that way is going to be much less likely to gain traction on TikTok and on Twitter and stuff like that. If you don't have venues where it can be presented to you in an exciting and incredible format. Definitely, man. Definitely. And then it was just thinking about like all the people that were just, that's pretty much going to lose a, I mean, all the business owners that own venues like that and just like they put they all into that venue and then just to be like mm -hmm. get wiped out in a matter of a couple months. This is a lot of those venues that's probably been there for like 30, 40 years. And then just to right. get just get wiped out like that over, I mean, over a pandemic, I guess, is is pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. And then yeah, um, I all they're waiting on now, it's cool that they're trying to get the government involved to give them money for 
for these venues. They need to be a lot of these venues need to be treated like you know like um, cultural landmarks. Yeah, pretty much like cultural landmarks. Yeah, right. They should be yeah, treated I, like that. Yeah, I was I was just uh, that whole the whole ideology of like how they were get getting funding to me, which was again like the solution based thing you mentioned. That just seems like the most hopeless to me of all of the things because I just know that the government is cut it is going to end up cutting funding for so many things that like for them to give funding to local concert venues is so much a shot. Take the money from the police. Well, hey, take the money from the cops. I can I can scream that to high heavens, but it doesn't mean that the the Trump administration is about to be like, oh, you know what? You small to medium sized concert venues that like do indie rap shows. Let's just give you all of the money. I I, like I really get affected the most is the ones that do all that host all the rap shows. They're going to be like, no, we're going to do a little though. We don't need Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. The other venues. <laughs> I know. And here's the other. So here's the other thing that I just got. Because I think what's funny is we're all talking about like young artists on the come up. But when I actually think some on some level of the uh, throughout my life, the kind of really small venue shows that have been so impactful to me. Uh, the biggest one, firstly, which I always like to talk about because it was such a cool show that I ever saw was at a, a, a venue in Baltimore when I was in high school called Sonar that no longer exists. But it was uh, a local Baltimore rapper named Soul Cannon, who has a really cool album uh, from back in the day that I actually still will go back to. Then J Electronica, but not pre when pre Exhibit C coming out. It was just when Exhibit A was starting to blow. But then he opened for Talib and Mos Def, and then they did a full Black Star set. And then like it was just an amazing show. Like it was right after Michael Jackson had passed and Mos Def did this whole like Billy Jean cover and he was like rapping while he's playing the drums pre any version of Anderson Pack. It was like this really crazy uh thing. But I then I thought of like rapper because you know, Mose and Talib were kind of established at that point, but they were still kind of some version of indie. So it wouldn't, I think, necessarily just affect the up and coming acts, but those acts that never really got to the stadium level and are not gonna be like opening up for Drake, but they have still got kind of gained that like lower level fan base and been able to go on tour. So there are even it would even wipe out those kind of older artists that still had this loyal fan base, they wouldn't even be able or like an artist like a currency. I've heard him talk about it specifically about how he like can kind of go out and sell out these like 3,000 people venues these like media mid-sized venues and he can kind of go on a tour and get his money right for a year but like those artists specifically too like how are they going to make any bread definitely it's artists like currency that be the main ones that benefit the most off touring like currency can tour the mm-hmm. whole year long like for two years straight and never and never drop another project and it was still He'd be like, I can't. I'm always on the road. Like, I got all these shows to do. Like, <laughs> think about it. He sells out everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. That's a that's a good question. Do you think with less touring, do you think artists will try to balance that out by putting out more music? Because I don't, I don't know if that really replaces the revenue. It's but not. you know, just talking, that's got to come up in conversation if we're talking about ways to adjust to not having access you know, to as much I don't touring. think they'll put out more music because they don't want to oversaturate. Like it's not yeah. many people like a little baby right now or dub baby or like just artists and other artists in general that can put out constant music. Cause if they do that, they'll just gas out and you know, people will move on. From merch. Got to sell merch. Hear that listeners buy merch from your favorite artists. <laughs> right. They're not touring. Go buy a shirt, yeah. go get a vinyl. Shit, I don't even is it. I don't even think that many artists are making merch right now, though. They just right. I, the most. Well, a lot of the major releases obviously have been like, yeah, they've been pushed off. I was even surprised. I was going to mention earlier when uh, Mickey put uh, the Weekends album in his top five. How surprised I was that that album even got released. Uh, you know, like the Weekend oh, headlines yeah. the largest festivals in the country. Oh yeah. Uh, so you know, not having any of that to do I'm, i was pretty surprised they put out an album that definitely not, does not fit the sound of what is going on right it now, is so. not quarantine music at all oh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that shit is only supposed to be in those gigantic in the club yeah, at 3 a.m the club That's at 3 a.m we get in these, the like, summer i mean the summer's coming up so more artists are going to drop more new music and this is going to make it more frustrating because people are going to be like it's not going to have 
it's not going to last that long because people are going to listen to it and they'll be like, all right, cool. Well, I can't go see him live or nothing. Or he ain't got no tour going on. So it's no momentum behind it. So it's just the music. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, all right, but I'll come back. Here's the other thing that I thought of is maybe a solution. Um, I, I, yeah, I really meant to mention this. So ho- obviously the, the easiest way to help people be able to social distance or some version of that without, um, is, is just to have music festivals. And I was wondering if maybe that would mean that there was a possibility to have more independent music festivals where it's more like of a huge variety of more lower key artists. Yeah, that, yeah, uh, that's actually a pretty good idea. But you still got to like, you know, you still got to sell tickets to the festival. Right. Not and a lot of those festival that, you tickets. Still, you still need a venue to do it. And if 90 of them are wiped out, what you going to <laughs> No, but they, well, they would all be outdoor festivals and more like yeah, more like parks and right. stuff like that. Yeah, but you still like it's risky though because you got to worry about. I mean, you can only do it in certain er- certain areas of the country. Like you do it somewhere else, mm-hmm. it's gonna snow, rain, thunderstorm, tornadoes. <laughs> right. You know, just do them all. Just do it all in the south. The south would be the the hub. Of, the south would be the hub of all all for all uh, future music festivals. Yeah. There's. I mean, it's definitely. Something to follow. Um, interesting. Going to have to keep an eye on just kind of how that adjusts. It's really hard to guess right now. It's I definitely for pretty sure there's not going to be any concerts whatsoever until 2021. Yeah. Um, so I'm already saving up for you know a festival next well, year. I'd love to go to Bonnaroo. In, it says in the article that they're not doing anything until there's an immediate vaccine available first. Right. There's no way. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's like, that's going to take a, a six months to a year by itself. Even if they did find a vaccine, like we found the cure, we just have yeah. to test it to make sure it's going to work. And you got to yeah. distribute it. I too. keep worrying, even in place where like New York, where they've kind of flattened the curve, even just opening restaurants and things like that. I just like, as soon as someone comes in from out of town and one person spreads it, it just goes like wildfire. If they start really keep, because I've seen so many videos of people still out in restaurants kind of like doing that already since there's they've mm. gone into phase three and i <laughs> yeah as soon as until there's a vaccine there's just no way to avoid actually having people um not spread the virus it's it's spreading crazy all over the south now specifically i was looking at numbers in an article yesterday yeah well we could uh i mean we could talk about covid all day but <laughs> let's go ahead and uh and wrap up yeah so I wanted to, again, shout out our authors that we worked on or that we covered today. So we had a conversation with Yante Hitchcock, The Sincere Dreamer by Yo Phillips and DJ Booth. We had, oh, got to scroll back to the top to get the title. Rumor is More Than a Mask in a Viral Moment by Eric Skelton in Complex. And for OK Player, we had 90% of independent music venues may close due to COVID-19 by Tori Threadcraft. And as always, I'm trying to throw this plug in at the end of all of our episode. Listeners, uh, if you are a writer, if you know independent writers, small bloggers, small magazine writers, please send us your stuff. Uh, we, as we usually bring a lot of articles from large publications, uh, but I know that there are lots of small writers out there who are making some truly unique and creative content. We would love to feature some of that content on the podcast, but it is hard to find. So if you know someone or if you are a writer, send us your stuff. Uh, We're pretty much guaranteed to at least give it a retweet, if not feature it on the podcast. But I would like to actively include small independent writers on this podcast in the future. End it on that. Yep. Thanks for listening, everybody. This episode of The Search of Source featured Mickey Hellerback, Boone Paul, and Brandon Hill of the Central Source Creative Collective. This episode was edited by me, Giant Sarah of the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for the show is Fuck Up by Basti. Thanks to Jawbreakers for the ability to use. This has been the Central Source and Fifth End Podcast Network production. Thanks to Basti, Jawbreakers, Central Source, the Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.